So hello everybody and welcome back to Folk on Falcons. I'm Philip Mundy and joining me are... Ian Joseph. And also we're delighted to introduce our special guest... Matthew Thompson. And some of you may recognise the voice and also the name. Of course, he's had his time playing with us and now he's in a, a backroom role at the Falcon and we're delighted to have him on because he can talk things a bit more detailed than we normally can. A bit later than usual this week, obviously, the Royal Funeral, etc. And also it's given us a, a great chance to be down at Druid Park and have a chat with Matt. So um, without further ado, let's get cracking. As always, you can find us find us on social media. Yep, yeah, so on Facebook, if you just simply type in Folk on Falcons, you'll see our profile. And on Twitter, it's, again, simply at Folk on Falcons. Smashing. So um, different view from the rest of us. Um, we'll start with Leicester. Um, Matt, obviously the first half got away from us, then we're playing catch-up a bit. But overall, is that the sort of performance you want to see this season? Uh, it was definitely a better performance than last year. Um, we were very competitive in periods of the game. In short, we had uh, two crazy periods in the game, uh, just before half-time and the first 10 minutes, where we were all almost sort of playing within ourselves and... I sort of feared, not feared them, that's the wrong word, but just allowed them to play and we didn't play. As soon as after that first eight to ten minutes, um, we started playing, keeping phases, we got field position and we we were we were threatening. Um, speaking of Dave last night, he's obviously in constant uh, dialogue with referees. The referees had admitted some glaring errors, let's put it that way, that... Uh, would have hugely benefited the scoreline, the number of tries we scored, uh, which is very frustrating, but we can't dwell on that and we move forward. But in a nutshell, I do do think we are improving. Watching the game, it seemed to be a case that, a bit similar to Harlequins last season, I know last week, rather, I know it's only two games in against two very, very good sides, but we're scoring tries, which for us over many seasons hasn't come easy. Um, so that doesn't really encourage me. On the flip side of that, we are conceding a lot of tries, as I say, against two very good teams in difficult circumstances. However, do you feel that once maybe we get some more players back, particularly the centres, uh, maybe the team kind of gets gels a bit more and gets fewer games in the belt, we can show that defence It's all very well, scoring lots of tries, but then obviously we don't be conceding more than that at the other end. No doubt we're... Um, when- we are missing quite a few influential players. Uh, we're getting a Tian Schumann back, uh, who looks a great prospect, not saying that Brett Conan isn't, um, but it's more strength and depth. Um, we are slowly blooding him back after a horror 18 months of injury. Um, obviously, we've got the two two lads who just finished playing for, the Argent- uh, for Argentina. They will be a huge, huge benefit to us moving forward. And then we've got a couple of injury injury problems. Uh, Carl Ferns limped off. He looks like it could be um, a couple of months. Gary Graham's out for a couple of months. Callum Chick was out. Hopefully he's back for Worcester. So even just there, we're, we're, Tom Penny is a great attacking fullback. We're, we're getting Matteo back on the wing, who scored a brilliant try against Leicester, but we didn't want to rush him back too soon. All names that hugely benefit us in a matchday squad. When it comes to, to gelling that team together, yes, it's going to take time. Dave, being a new head coach, still it takes months, if not years, to implement a game plan into a team. I think he's doing quite a good job at the minute, and it's entertaining. So, at the minute, we're pretty we're pretty happy where we are, even though the results haven't gone for us. 
Um, you've touched upon a couple of injuries, or more than a couple of injuries there. Um, what we've noticed this year is we've got the unavailables as well as the um, selections, which I think the fans appreciate is quite useful. Um, when you look at the unavailable list, it's worryingly long. Is it par for the course in professional rugby these days? You always have a list that long, or is, are we particularly unfortunate at the minute? Is there something? Are they doing incredibly physical work over the off season, or is it just unfortunate? Bit of both, I would say. Look, <laughs> rugby are getting bigger, faster, stronger, and uh, you need bigger squads. Yeah, the unavailable list is long. Would I say it's the way we're training? No, it's not. Um, but I just think over the last six weeks, we have had some impact injuries that haven't gone our way. And sort of these people that need surgery or they need eight to 12 weeks off. It's just the life of a professional sportsman and, and what happens in the professional game, really. Just, I would say, on the whole, it's a bit unlucky. And then with them being, obviously, professional sportsmen, when they need surgery, etc. do they, is it all private or do they end up in the same way as the rest of us when you try and get a hospital appointment? Yeah, I, I always I always used to giggle when I used to go and I, there was an element I used to feel very guilty about because uh, you almost walk to the front of the queue. Uh, we've got specialists all over the country uh, on different um, body parts. Uh, London, Bristol, Manchester, um, Newcastle. And uh, if you need surgery, it's pretty much the next day. You go in. Um, we've got Gordon, the club driver, normally drives you down, gets surgery. If you're staying in overnight, he stays down and then he drives you back and gives you first-class service. Uh, um, so, yeah, you jump to the front of the queue. And then if we move on to Wasps last night, um, Premiership Cup's obviously a very different kettle of fish to Premiership. And... Alongside that, we've got a very different squad as per usual. But um, it was nice to see local boy Charlie Madison, who I played against at schoolboy level. Very nice to see him captaining the side. Um, there was a few names there, young players, who were seen for perhaps the first time. And does the club treat the Premiership Cup as a competition we want to win? Or is it very much a let's give people experience and get them out there, get them playing good rugby? So, look, the, the, the way it's... Um, structured in the season, there is no way that these players could back up a Leicester on a Saturday to then a Wasps travel on a Tuesday to then a Worcester on a Saturday again. So that's where you lean on your squad. Um, if I'm honest, we would love to win it. So would every club, but they use it as the same as what we do. It's to give your young lads who possibly aren't week in, week out playing first team exposure to a first team environment. And obviously we haven't got A League at the minute. So these young lads have to have to get a number of games under their belt to develop. I think every club uses this as a a, a springboard to try and get these players playing at a certain level so they can come in to the first team environment on a on a weekend um, and I think it was a useful tool last night even though we lost we found out uh, a lot about a lot of the young kids where they possibly need work ons have they just got their nerves out of them of making their debuts um, and who played well who would we be confident to put in 
um, in a first team environment. I think we found that out uh, with Phil Branthingham in the last two games. Done exceptionally well for a young lad coming in at loose head. I mean, in terms of the actual game itself, um, first half was pretty disappointing. Much better second half felt like got more of all the game, came back into it. Disappointing to see Josh Thomas obviously go off mm -hmm. so early. But I mean, you talk about obviously these young lads and get them experience. I mean, do you feel that, for example, for sale next Tuesday, um, that would be a much better environment, environment for them to perhaps put on a better performance generally because they have that experience of playing last night and it's a home game against them. Uh, it's a home game and they don't have the travel as well. Doing that would benefit them. I mean, more. the travel was a massive thing. They've travelled down in the day. They did a, a team run in the morning and then uh, travelled down. So ideally, we wouldn't be doing that. That possibly may be one of the reasons why we got off to a slow start. Uh, for sale next week, if I'm honest, it all depends on what happens on Sunday. Mm. If Sunday game's on, the team will look quite similar. If the game's off, we may choose to give people a couple more minutes. It's interesting, that, yeah. Yeah, interesting. so we're all waiting for Thursday and, and Dave's got a couple of scenarios yeah. in his head for team selection. Um, while we're on the team selection point, obviously, um, or Ian and I have both been having a chuckle about it um, because it seems that Jamie Bamaya, not only is he a, an England international hooker, he's also a very good number seven. And with Charlie Madison starting last night as captain, does that indicate that Bamaya is going to be on the bench at the weekend or play, starting at hooker? Or basically, what, what's the plan? Is it a, an alternative viable position or is he covering numbers with a lot of back row injuries? So, uh, Jamie is a hooker, definitely a hooker. He's a very talented hooker. He's an England hooker. Um, uh, we had a chat with him and he, we felt that he could do a job for us in the back row, which he did, and he was really, really good at it, um, considering the amount of time he spent there. But that is only because of the number of injuries we have. Long term, we definitely see him as a hooker at the club. I'd just like to say to like to fill in at that short notice against the teams that he did. I think we're, we could all say he was exceptional. Mm -hmm. um, Jamie is the probably one of the best rugby players in open play that we have at the club. It's phenomenal. So um, yeah, well done to him. And it takes he could have quite easily gone. No, I'm not comfortable with that. But all he all he saw was I want to get 80 minutes under my belt and run around a rugby park, which is yeah. what they all should want. I mean, it's great that we have a player like that, too. Not only has the ability, obviously he's a great hooker, we all know that, but has the ability to slot in virtually anywhere and yeah. put a, not put a foot roll, not let anyone down, and have that mindset that he just wants to go out and play for his club, and that, that's really good. Yeah, could say it's kind of true north. Mm. We'll come on to that a bit later on. One other quick query that I have, I'm, I'm, I haven't swatched up on my rule book, um, you normally have a rugby scenario with a 5-3 split on the bench, potentially a 6-2. With Blamaya playing open side, would you still be required to have a hooker on the bench or could you potentially have a 4-4 split? No, I believe you've got to... I don't know, if I'm honest, but I believe you've got to um, select a full front row on the bench. Fair enough. Because we, we were just going through ramifications between us the other week of kind of, could you end up with a two two loose forwards on the bench, two props and then four backs and suddenly have a, a huge deal more attacking potential or mix it around in a certain way where you could have a bit of fun with things. No, I believe you've got to, you've got to have a full 
front row on the bench and a name Tucker as well. Fair enough. So, as you've just mentioned it, obviously, since we last spoke to you, and I think it was early January, late December time, um, there's been quite a bit of change behind the scenes at the club. And also, I think it's been to show on the pitch that there's a bit of a different psychology to things. And um, first, if we go through the new setup, it was a, it was a bit strange for us as fans hearing about Dean Richards coming into a consultancy role, then not, and then the overall becoming a bit more prominent, then having Dave Walder kind of as announced relatively late on as a head coach. What what was the process that got us to the current position? And if we just refresh on the current position and who is who? So we, we at the time, there was always discussions uh, with Dean. Seymour was having a lot of discussions with Dean about his role at the club. Um, um, and then it, it, I think they came to a, a, a point where they decided that, that Dean was going to step down in his role. Um, there was chat at one point that he was going to sit on the board, maybe. or uh, But uh, in the end, we just thought possibly a fresh start uh, for everyone was what the club needed. Um, and Seymour approached myself and just said, would you like to chair a, a rugby committee board um, and then work behind the scenes with agents uh, and players and uh, on the recruitment side of things. And um, after some thought, chat with my family, uh, I thought I would love to do it. Uh, so, yeah, and then uh, obviously spoke to the coach and staff and uh, they were all happy with it. They just, it almost takes responsibility uh, of behind the scenes off Dave to concentrate purely on the rugby side of things, which is which he really enjoys. So Seymour seems happy with it. I'm, I'm definitely happy with it. Really enjoying my role, even though uh, my phone never stops ringing. Um, wife's not too happy about it, but, you know, she, she can deal with it. So, yeah, uh, I've, I've given up sort of... Uh, I used to coach local rugby. I've had to give that up just through time commitments. And if I did that as well as this, I probably would never see my family. You missed about three calls at the time. I know. Well, um, <laughs> here we go. Three calls... Four text messages all off agents. So that's typical, yeah. <laughs> just typical, really, of uh, especially in the quarter past seven, especially what's happening at the minute in rugby. I think it's turbulent to say the least, and uh, no one knows really what's around the corner. So um, it's unprecedented. I've walked into something here. I really enjoy it, but I'm having to lean on certain people um, for advice. But that's the, it's the way people learn. Um, and hopefully I can do the best job for the club and for Seymour. Yeah, and Dave Alder's previous role was attack coach. And is there now a new attack coach? Or was he always lined up to be a, effectively the head coach? Or did it, was it kind of people being in the right position at the right time and things slot into place nicely with... Perhaps you could also say the same about Wilson and Nick Easter moving on. Was this always the plan or is it just the way it's worked out and it seems to have worked out in kind of a nice-ish way? There was always a a plan there if certain people moved on and um, because there's always got to be a contingency plan. Um, We felt Dave was the right person for the job at the time. Uh, As head coach, he sits above all the other coaches. The final decision is his. Um, Mark Laycock 
obviously being promoted from the academy, still helps Jimmy Ponton in the academy whenever needed. But his main role is uh, backs attacks coach, attack coach. Uh, we've got Mark Wilson with Dave Walder in the defence, and obviously Mickey and Scotty looking after the uh, looking after the forwards, the big lads. So that's that's the the dynamic of the of the coaching group. And then I I sort of have daily daily chats with Dave uh, regarding current players, prospective players coming in, uh, building a squad for many years down the line. So, I mean, you touched on it a few minutes ago. Um, there's a motto or a psychology, if you will, which the club has been pushing on everywhere, whether it's on beer glasses, on the new home shirts, all sorts of material, and that is true north. So, I mean, can you explain to us, can you explain to listeners what exactly that does entail for the club? So, true north, it, it, was, it was brought in by the players, actually, a couple of years ago. But we felt it got put on the back burner a little bit for one reason or another. Uh, Dave, uh, well, all the coaches and all the players thought this is the right time to bring that back in. Uh, so I've got I've got the uh, the True North writings here. So it's True North. There's an orienteering point, your fixed point in a spinning world that helps you stay on track as a leader. It is derived from your most deeply held beliefs, values, and the principles you lead by. It is your internal compass, unique to you, representing you. Uh, sorry, who you are at your deepest level. So, we want a tight knit club and community, diligent and resourceful, role models of the northeastern mentality, and open to any challenges. That is pretty much what the players describe as true north and what they hold themselves by, uh, and. <sighs> The whole club really um, goes by the True North philosophy now as well. As a group of players or we, as a club have sort of come together and come up with that because as fans sometimes you may think, well, things aren't going this well and they sort of go off the track a little bit. And I think it's quite encouraging for everyone that especially coming from the players, they want to create this sort of unique identity just what Newcastle is. Obviously, it's the North East Club and they want to, that to be represented in both, you know, every day when they come to work and, and how they show that basically to, to the fans. And I think that, that's actually really encouraging. What uh, it needs to be relative to the region and the club itself, we want the vast majority of our players to be originally from the Northeast area. Um, and I think everything that I've read out there stands, stands true of regionally where we are at hard-working, honest people. And hopefully we could... We, we, I, I always think that every year things need tweaking, but this will get tweaked every once in a while, but the vast majority will hold hold true and um, we'll stand by it for many years to come, really. I mean, it must a, be a good. playing group and a, a club and, and hopefully support. I mean, it must be good, obviously, when you want to sign new players to show that this is... This is what we want to hear by. This is what the club is about. This yeah. is what we stand for. And it, so it gets them on board as well. Maybe it feels, make, it makes them feel like they're joining something and more part of the club as well. Yeah, yeah. That everyone kind of wants to aspire to and kind of go go with. So I think it's a good idea. Essentially, all is one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're one club. And that's the way we want to move forward. Uh, if we have success, failure, whatever, 
We do it all together. It's not the people on the pitch and people off the pitch. If we have success off the pitch, hopefully that will convey on the pitch and vice versa. So. Also, something like that obviously doesn't cost anything. You know, I think something like that is really easy there to convey to fans, players, anyone involved in the club that, you know, and I think it's something everyone can get behind. And like I say, it doesn't cost anything. A bit of brotherhood and a bit of single objective like that, I think, can, you know, is more than money's worth in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think for every club, that, that's something that they should be looking towards. And I think for a club like us, we want to have, a, but you've mentioned it before at the um, fans event, the preseason event, you know, there is a bit of a reset going on. And I think that this is very much a part of it. I think for fans, that, that's really good to see. Thanks. Hopefully we're going in the right direction. Is it um, getting something down on paper that's been kind of the ethos for many years, or is it trying to make, all, not a cultish mentality is the wrong way about wording it, but kind of something where people who, or in the last couple of years, has it been that some of the squad members may have been of this psyche and others may not, and it's to really almost bind everyone together and move forward as one? Is it having much of a difference in day-to-day psychology but amongst the players? Is it just formalising something that's always been informally there? I can't comment on what's previously gone on because I wasn't so much in the circle as I am now. Um, but I do think the mentality is it's us up north and everyone else. And we've got to sort of come together as one to beat to beat the, the the southerners kind of thing or everyone everyone um down south. I can't comment on what happened like, uh, in previous years. Um, but from speaking to the players, they do feel there's a different mentality, a different environment within the club. For the better, I presume. Hopefully. Hopefully <laughs> the better. And if we then move on to the club's targets now with this new sort of mentality, the new framework and setup of the of field staff, if we take off our rose-tinted spectacles and put on our really what are we aiming for this year with no relegation, the cup competitions, and then next year and the years after when relegation or who knows what the situation will be given recent events. But if we just look at the, the very near near short term this season and then the next couple of seasons, what is the, the desires of the club? So as a club, and speaking of Dave, uh, he said, oh, do, do, do we need to finish in a certain league position or, or, or what have you? No, would never give him that because first and foremost, we deem that this isn't his squad. This is a squad built by someone else. We want to, for years to come, we want to build a squad of mainly Northeast Academy-based pro- uh, products that are here to stay and abide by the true North mentality. This season, do we say we want to win the Prem Cup or we're going to win the league? But it's every game is dictated by small margins. So we can't be... Against Harlequins, it could have gone either way. If Radwan gets gets away in the last play of the game, he's underneath the posts mm-hmm. and he's gone. Unfortunately, that doesn't quite work out. They score and um, deny us two points. Small margins across the board um, win and lose games. So it was really tough to go, we've got to win the Premiership Cup or we've got to finish fourth or first or eighth. In, in the in the premiership what we want to do is play entertaining an entertaining brand of rugby get which hopefully will get bums on seats 
that will hopefully grow a club that we can then keep our young talents that possibly we have lost for one reason or another in previous years, uh, continue to to play that brand of rugby and um, slowly grow the club in the right way. Because, And I say the word slowly because if you build it too fast or you grow it in the wrong way, you can see what happens to certain clubs that's going on the last two weeks. So we, we've got to live within our means, but how we see to live within our means, we've got to put bums on seats. We're in an entertainment industry. We've got to first entertain. We've got to think that the fans are getting value for money. And I've always said at Falcons that I've been going there for nearly 30 years now, not longer than that, 32 years. If you win, lose or draw, fans will most likely walk away happy if they've seen a good game of rugby. And we have been competitive. If we haven't been competitive and we played a poor brand of rugby, that's when fans walk away and go, I'm never coming back. Or I don't want to come back for another six months and then I'll see. I think the last two games, uh, Premiership games, we played a brand of rugby, competitive, uh, of competed against two of the best teams in the, the Premiership and in general I think we've pleased our support So you talk about wanting to obviously build a mentality which you know let's face it will, will take time um, the question is I suppose if the results don't come I guess particularly at home will that mentality change will, will there be pressure to kind of change tactics or change how you kind of want to go about games and perhaps make them less entertaining is it all about winning at the end of the day or are you going to kind of stick to your guns and, and kind of want to play an entertaining brand of rugby even if it may take some time so winning is a habit and so is losing previously we have been had I always felt that we should be winning these games but yet we're not because possibly for instance Harlequins knew how to win they just had that belief there to win and possibly we didn't it only takes one incident to change that mentality. No, I w- we will not as a club be trying to change the way we play or the, the 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 brand of rugby to win individual games. What we are doing is developing a brand of rugby that's going to entertain and then eventually win games down the line. So it's more of a long-term goal rather than short-term success. There, there would be no pressure on on Dave or anyone like that. Obviously, we have in previous years they've had always the threat of relegation looming over them. Whereas this year, and I believe years to come, I don't think there will be that threat of relegation, especially with what's currently happening with Worcester and and Wasps. I don't think there's going to be relegation for a very very long time. Yeah, I agree with you on that point. And therefore again, it becomes even more important to become uh, entertaining Mm -hmm. uh, and want to get bums on seats, whether we win or lose. I remember, I can't remember if it was on or off record, the chat we had around Christmas time. Um, You said the break-even point for the club was about five to 6,000 before we basically, it becomes financially viable. Um, Does the bums on seats really take the desire for the club away from winning and more into providing a spectacle, as you said, in the entertainment industry, 
obviously the two do go hand in hand, but as a business, is it better to finish eighth, play exciting rugby and have 8,000 every week or 10,000 if we're doing well, than to finish potentially fourth or fifth and have grinding out 13, 12 wins um, with a pushover try in the last minute sort of thing and finish higher up the table? Good question. I mean, you've got benefits from both. Um, playing entertaining rugby, but yet losing 30 points to 40, and you get six, seven, eight thousand, hopefully, in the ground. Those bums on seats, because we're playing in a more entertaining brand of rugby, help you financially. Uh, you can build infrastructure within the club. Uh, but also, it allows, well, I think better players want to play that brand of rugby as well. So it allows you to attract a, a better standard of player. If you're scraping 13, 12 wins out every week and you're finishing second, third or fourth, that also has benefits to the club. Uh, you get to play in the Heineken Cup. Uh, bigger sponsors. Uh, possibly the ability to get better players in as well because every player wants to play at an elite level, which would be the Heineken Cup. So... It's it's the way we've gone. We I I and Seymour deem that regionally fans want to see a brand of rugby that you get the Adam Radwans running down the wing and scoring sixty meter tries, and you 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 have a the kids can worship a player, can have a hero. I think. Um, Recently, they haven't. Uh, the football club, I don't think, have had a had a, a hero since Alan Shearer. If I'm honest, they're going back to get that. I don't think we have had a cult figure, a hero since Johnny Wilson. Um, I think young kids follow that, and that also helps to put bums on seats as well. Hopefully, we've got a couple young lads that can turn into those those figures that. Every child wants to be gets the ball in the in the park and and shouts his name and skins four people to score a try or kicks the ball over the posts whatever his skill is. Um, so to answer your question, uh, they both have benefits. Either winning thirteen twelve with a boring pushover and with box kicked it all day, but we deem the the, the way we are going to go down and what best suits our coaching staff and our current crop of players is to play the current brand of rugby, which is move the ball around a bit and get it in the wide spaces and and get them entertaining. Yeah, it's always amused me slightly that when we got the plastic pitch, it's obviously with this sort of rugby in mind to some extent, not playing in a mud bath. And I'd say since we've had the plastic pitch, we've had an extremely good pack of forwards and the game has gone through that pack of forwards, which certain purists, Ian included, like to watch. But if you're talking about getting young boys and girls into something which is obviously an exciting spectacle, we haven't played a brand of rugby which the pitch is suited towards, and it almost works in our opponents' favours at times when they've got those exciting players. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look... <laughs> 
Uh, for the purists, watching a drive at Mall is very entertaining. Uh, George McGuigan scoring how many? 20 odd, 20 odd tries. The vast majority of them off the back of a driving mall. And it just shows that we've got more than one trick. We're not a one trick pony. Uh, now we, at Leicester and at Quinns, we have that in our locker. That then tells other clubs, by the way, you can't give mindless penalties away in the middle of the pit, uh, in the park, because, and stop our momentum because we will kick you in the 22 and we will drive you off the path there. Um, So if they don't do that and they don't stop our momentum, that allows our back line to make breaks, score from further afield, 70-metre tries and stuff like that. So we're becoming more than a one-trick pony. And when we're on the commercial side of things, um, obviously Thunder's been scaled back in its professionalism since we last spoke to you um, although there's also things like the NUFC ladies are playing at St James Park I remember as a boy going to see Newcastle United Reserves play there every now and again is, is it the very much the fact that the club has got the asset in this pitch which doesn't really suffer from wear and tear in the same way turf does and we need to get as many local sports teams playing on it as possible definitely that is definitely the case look at the end of the day it's a business and the reason why we laid that uh, 3G pitch was so we could make use of that asset uh, and that um, the great stadium that we've got. The team play, uh, train on it virtually every day. So did Thunder, so do all the academies. But at the weekends, if there is teams that that, that can play on it, and we last Saturday we had Pontyland first team playing on it because they had a water shortage at their ground. Um, We've had a team, Gosforth, Gosforth, someone were playing on it today. It's used every day. It's kept immaculate by a Mark the Groundsman and it's, 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 it helps the business hugely through rent, through rental of it, but also we don't have to have four or five immaculate grass pitches maintained. We just need that one 3G. With regards to Newcastle United ladies, um, they used to play here at Druid and the reserves now do. Uh, but speaking to um, the team manager last year, um, I had a long conversation with her and I very quickly understood that the, that ladies team was going to outgrow Dru- Little Druid Park very quickly. Um, so I thought, why, why shouldn't we push them down the Falcons? Um, so the plan is that they... They are, I mean, their long-term goal is they want to play in the Ladies' Champions League. Um, We have a 10,000 capacity stadium. That would be perfect for them in the long term. We've just got to prove that uh, that's the right place for the ladies to play. They've got, I think they've just had four home games um, recently uh, and they're in discussions with us now to try and get more on. Uh, obviously, it's just sometimes they clash with the the Falcons games, so they've got to find elsewhere. And then, obviously, I think they go to the last home game. They're going to go again to St James's Park. But long term, down the line, we would love Newcastle United ladies to be um, uh, make Kingston Park their home. I mean, Brush. Well, you've talked there about your, the relationship that the club has with. Newcastle United, particularly with the ladies there. But in terms of 
games, feature games at St. James's Park. Um, but I think one of the big revelations from that preseason launch is when he said that the club actually lost money in hosting those games at St. James's Park. And with new owners there, I know that Seymour has a bit of a relationship with new owners. Could we in the future be seeing more games there or would, would those games perhaps become more profitable or more realistic for, for the Falcons to, to actually put on? That's a conversation that Seymour has to have with the owners of Newcastle United. Um, I hope so. That was one of my regrets that um, as a player, I never got to play at St. James's Park as a, a, a young a young lad from the region. Um, it was a great spectacle. I would love at least one there every year. But again, we've got to grow things in the right way as a club. Um, we Previously, we've had the mindset of we would possibly try and grow rugby in the region by putting it in Newcastle United and um, losing money. Mm. We've learned the hard way that possibly that didn't work because the 35,000 that that came on that day didn't mm. come back to Kingston Park. Mm. So it's how we uh, get that fan base up at Kingston Park and then possibly move, mm. move one or two games a season to St. James's Park. I might select myself there mm. at 10... <laughs> <laughs> I guess I've had a cameo for the last, last five minutes cameo, cameo yeah <laughs> we see other clubs obviously they have their big ones at Twickenham and, what and they whatnot all, and there must be such an advantage for them to be able to do well that. I'm not sure but I know uh, I'm, I'm positive that Saracens used to mm. lose money hand over fist mm. when they did it at Wembley and at Tottenham mm. obviously the rental the rental for s- such games like that is phenomenal and um I would eat my hat if every one of those supporters bought a ticket. Mm. I think there's a lot of freebies go out um, to make sure the stadium looks full. I can't comment on the the big one at Twickenham with Harlequins. Mm. I don't know what the, the situation there is with the rental of Twickenham. Uh, but I know that some, uh, when we went to St James's Park, it cost us a lot. Mm. I mean, you look at Saracens, I mean, they can't even fill Alliance Park a lot of the time. And that's a, obviously a really successful team to just goes to true really yeah. how transient a lot of these supporters can be yeah. at these events I just think fans want to see a spectacle and it helps when they go to Tottenham or they that, I mean that stadium is amazing yeah, it's incredible yeah. it's an incredible stadium but obviously showing, showing rugby at, at, uh, at Wembley they, they often Saracens often do it when they're playing at um, a Harlequins mm. or a Wasps mm. back in the day when they were down there so but again, we we struggle uh, to find a fixture where there is a lot of travelling fans mm-hmm. come up. We obviously get the hardcore um, people, but it would be a lot easier if there was a, a club close by that would bring the vast majority of their fans up to St James's Park. And also on on the you've touched on it there very well. Behind the scenes, there seems to have been a new sort of impetus in the way that the club approaches its fans. And I mean that in a way where we've got the, the train ticket arrangement now. Yeah. Like that. Um, is that somebody in the club has grabbed it by the scruff of the neck and gone out and approached, I think it's East Coast Trains, and said, we want this, can you make it work? Or has it always been going on? It's just now we're getting a bit more success and traction with things. So we brought in um, uh, Kate, who's head of our communications who really thinks outside the box with stuff. And she's been the catalyst to the vast majority of these these ideas. 
and she's done really well with them. So um, pat on the back to her. She's bound to have listened to this as well because she keeps a close eye on everything that people put out over the over social media and things. So yeah, pat on the back to her. She's done really well. Um, she's got loads more good ideas in the pipe pipeline to benefit the fans as well. But when I came in as well, I said, look, we've got to be transparent. I'm, I'm transparent in everything I do. If people like it or they don't, that's fine. But I'll be honest to them. Um, and I've said that to Kate as well. Look, we have to be honest with all the fans. They're paying hard-earned money to come and watch us. We've, we do, we, you've just got to be transparent with them. And they will, even if they deem it's not the correct move for the club, I think if you're honest with them, they'll follow you and they'll support you. So as of recording at uh, almost 10 to 8 uh, this this Wednesday night, um, a couple of hours ago, news broke that looks like Wasps will be going to administration. Obviously, there's all there's been all sorts going on with Worcester who are, seem to be sort of life support going almost day to day at the moment. I mean, obviously, sorry, in your position, you know, and all you, the sort of direct level in the club. I mean, what's your sort of view on on? I guess the tragedies of these two clubs. I mean, they're two huge, huge rugby clubs with massive histories, and it is you say it's a tragedy. It is a tragedy, and I think possibly what's happened is they've tried to live outside that means for one reason or another. New ownership potentially. Moving, moving to an, a different part of the country, and it doesn't look good for them, and it doesn't look good for rugby in England in general. I just hope that whatever the outcome of this situation is, people learn from it, and possibly don't try and live outside their means, because potentially 120 rugby players might be jobless by. Christmas. I mean, are we going to potentially see a domino effect of other clubs in England could be not immediately in the same situation, but down the line and not, not just England, but in Wales, you see there's questions about whether they can sustain as many clubs as they have at the top level. So are we, are we just kind of seeing the tip of the iceberg here? Could we potentially see a lot more? I believe that, believe that one Wales might streamline the number of clubs they've got in England. There has been rumours circulating for a year or two with regards to both those clubs. I don't think COVID helped whatsoever. I think that might have speeded the process up. Um, but with other clubs, I, I don't think there will be an issue uh, moving forward. Well, at least I hope, or I hope not. So obviously we're not expecting any inside financial information on the Falcons, etc., um, obviously, there was the operating profit, which was an anomaly amongst Premiership clubs, which was obviously a good thing last season. Um, the fact that we've got Worcester and Wasps towards the end of the year, and it, if suppose those two teams don't exist anymore, we're losing potentially the best part of 20% of our revenue from league games, consecutive games. And there's going to be six weeks without a Falcons match potentially. Obviously, that's not a good sign in any way. Has the club got a plan B or is it very much ideas on the wall at the, this stage as to what's going to happen in that period? Yeah, so we we have talked about it in management meetings. Um, we are aware 
that I think it's in April. Of our only two home games were Worcester and Wasps. Um, if they uh, we can't fulfil them. We're, we're going to have to be imag- imaginative with fixtures that we can provide to the fans, uh, but also for financial reasons, for, for cash, flow, cash flow purposes. There is nothing definite yet, but we have um, a couple of people, again, being creative with ideas of what we could do. We are, as I mean, we've got uh, hopefully Newcastle United ladies, might be there when we can't do um, rugby matches. Uh, there may be a CrossFit, uh, a, a, a UK CrossFit competition that we're looking to put on. Um, I'm in talks with local boxing promoters to try and get things like that on. But at the moment, we are waiting to see exactly what happens with Worcester and Wasps before we act on uh, fulfilling some some fixtures. In terms of the financials, there's obviously a lot of thought to be done at the minute, but also for the team, not having a game for that period of time at that point of the season, because I think we've only got one game left after that. Yeah. And let's hope we're in Europe or else we'll end up having six weeks, I think it's, between games. Um, yeah. What sort of other players going to have a basically a, a break to recuperate or is there the sort of thing where we can hopefully hit the last game, a full-strength squad, and really go for it. What, what's kind of the, the plan there? Because it's a very bizarre well, circumstance. Again, again, we don't know, because we don't know yet what's happening with Worcester or Wasps. Yes, six weeks without a game is definitely not ideal. I'm sure when it comes down to it, that, that decision's up to Dave, Dave, his SNC um, team and the coaching team. I would imagine... If there was six weeks without a game, there would be an element of time off, rest and recuperation for the boys. But obviously with a, the, a last game pending of the season, you can't just give them six weeks off and then to go on holiday uh, for another four, ten weeks off for a professional athlete. It, it, very rare to do that. So in short, we don't know uh, yet. Ideally, what I would like to happen is if those two teams can't fulfil their fixture, we would want to put games on at Kingston Park, rugby games on at Kingston Park, as well as other sporting um, events to keep the players fresh, fit, and also to uh, to keep the fans sort of happy. Obviously, they, they might be missing two, two home games, so it's not ideal, really. And supposing those two clubs cease to exist this time next year, would you foresee there being more promotion into the Premiership from the Championship, perhaps? Obviously, there's Ealing and Doncaster too that spring to mind, but you've also got Jersey. Might there be a dropping of stadium capacity requirements to, say, 5,000, which suddenly opens it up to half the Championship? Because would Premiership clubs be financially viable if they have two fewer teams in the league? I would say last season, if you ask me, when there was 13 teams is there going to be promotion relegation? It will be 50-50. Now, with this scenario going on, I believe there definitely will be promotion, but no rele- obviously no relegation. Um, and looking from the start of the season, what happened, it looks like the fa- the favourites would be Ealing. Can they financially compete? Yeah. Can they get their ground criteria up and running? 
what I've heard from certain players down there, there's plans to do so. So I think we we will definitely see one, if not two, get promoted. And I guess, um, obviously, the, the talk is quite negative at the minute for obvious reasons about what's going on. But is there potential silver lining for Falcons in that you've mentioned your phone doesn't stop buzzing? Do we have headroom potentially to make use of the fact we haven't spent up the salary cap to bring in some of the players from these teams that may be looking for a new job? Potentially. Um, The reason why I say potentially is because it's got to be the right player at the right price. And again, I'll reiterate, we don't want to get into a scenario of what these teams have got themselves into by possibly overspending. If a right the right player comes up, yes, we will look we will look to invest. But it's got to be the right player, and it's it's got to make sense for the club on the rugby side of things, but also the business side of things as well. So we're not prepared to live outside our means um, moving forward. I think potentially what might happen is. Uh, with one or two less teams in the professional environment, uh, but the same number of players, the value of players might decrease wage-wise. Wait and see what happens. I don't know. Yes, it's all very, very uh, walking in the unknown, and you can only speculate what what might happen. But yeah, that's what I think. I think a lot of rugby players have all got families and mortgages, um, cost of living, they want security, and there's definitely at the minute no security at Worcester. Uh, wasps are going into administration and the unknown kind of thing for them. So, I think players may look for an element of security in a, a rugby club rather than maximize um, their wages. They will, they will go for right. I'm getting a three-year contract at a solid club here that isn't on the brink, so to speak. Um, but the whole thing is you, you, we just don't know exactly what's going to happen with Worcester, what's going to happen with Worcester. Worcester don't know what's going to happen with Worcester tomorrow, never mind a, a year down the line. Uh, down the line. And was just announcing it a uh, couple of hours ago, uh, we'll just... Wait and see. Um, normally, normally you'll find out the full extent of things after about a week, um, and then players and uh, people in my position and players can make a more educated decision moving forward. And um, ultimately, do you think that rugby can be a viable profit-making business, or is it ultimately a rugby club is as good as the? pocket of the philanthropist that owns them well there's a wage cap to it isn't there so uh yeah you can spend up to the wage cap and then potentially you can you well you can have marquee players alongside that i would describe rugby as um owning a rugby club as a rich man's hobby at the minute um is it Going in the direction that it can be a viable business, I I, I think it is. Um, I think the catalyst to that was COVID. 
um, I think that almost made the bubble burst on the expenditure within rugby and rugby clubs. And I think it's it's sort of coming down a bit and getting a bit more sensible and realistic. And owners are saying, look, we've either got to break even or um, uh, become a profit profitable business. Um, but it, with everything, it takes time. And what would it be your solution, new model, that would mean that across the nation we have rugby clubs which are financially viable in the long term? Huh. Good question. Again, I use the comment, don't live outside your means. So if don't don't try and compete with other rugby clubs just because they go up to the salary cap or they have a million pound marquee player. Um be sensible and be realistic in where you're at in the grand scheme of things and build slowly. Don't think all the time that if you chuck money at it, it will fix it. I actually, uh, I look at Newcastle United at the minute and we all, we've all heard about how wealthy their owners are. I think they're being very sensible in how they've gone about things to grow the club Um they're not going out there and spending ridiculous money on super duper stars. Um, I'm sure we could have gone out and bought Kylian Mbappe for 500 million or whatever, but we're not. We're building in a in a slow and methodical way. So when we actually get to the Champions League, we're sustainable. They are sustainable as a business, and we're not just so heavily reliant on the owners the back pocket of the owners kind of thing. So, I mean, with rugby, again, I'll go back to your question. You've just got to be building a methodical, slow, correct manner that is suited for the size of your rugby club. And that's, by the way, throughout the pyramids, not just Premier Rugby, it's regional rugby as well. Uh, I know some regional rugby clubs pay <clears throat> quite a lot of money to their players um, I, I personally, I don't think that's a long-term solution. Um, my last rugby club, their um, their director of rugby said, we want to be the most successful rugby club in the region that doesn't pay their players. And I really, really, really respected that because they knew where they were. They are, the gate said, we're a very, very successful rugby club off the field and they were building in the right way on it as well throughout through the through the mini section and trying to develop players within their first team the right way other rugby clubs possibly through a little bit at, at that level through a little bit of cash at it bringing in players for short-term success but not a lot not a long-term so i think that brings to a close our interview with matt been a lot of very interesting points made um certainly good to get an insider's viewpoint on various things. And I think right now it makes reality hit home for a lot of us as to the precarious nature of not just business, but sport as well. And um, yeah, so thank you very much, Matt. Um, we'd like to have you on again in future and I hope you'd like to come on. Yep, definitely would. Anytime, of course. And if you, if you need me to ask any players that you fancy uh, bringing on or anyone from the club, I know possibly Kate might be interested uh, to come on and give her viewpoints of how she's trying to grow the club. Uh, I think she would love to. 
Great. We'll take you up on that in the future, definitely. Thank you. Thank you very much.